Hi, I'm Lee Kelly, and this is That Moment Podcast, where you share stories of the moments your life changed. Well, Dave, it's really, really great to be here, and I just thought I'd just start a little bit talking about how I met you, and I moved to Wanaka about, well, in 2009, and I remember... You know, part of the sort of the dialogue around that time was around some of the most amazing climbers, mountain climbers, endurance athletes. You know, Wanaka attracts those sorts of people, doesn't it? Oh, they all like to talk about themselves. Too yeah. Much. So, but anyway, <laughs> there was a name, Dave Vass, which I kept hearing about this sort of crazy mountaineer that had done all these pioneering routes. He'd set up the, the a canyoning business, Deep Canyon in Wanaka, which I actually went along and had an experience for a day. So I hadn't met you, but I heard that you were a very flamboyant character. Ah. Yeah. So anyway, let me keep talking. Mm-hmm. So then 2015, I heard that this Dave Vass, this amazing mountaineer, very physical, strong person, had had this terrible accident and become a tetraplegic. And I remember thinking, wow, how would that be to go from being so physically able to now having this complete change of life. So I was sort of drawn to your story without even meeting you. And then a few years later, I think 2018, you joined one of my Speak With Confidence courses to learn to public speak with confidence and presence. One of your excellent public, one excellent speak with confidence Thank you. Well, thank you so much. But I remember thinking, wow, how exciting. I've wanted to meet this person for so long and now I'm meeting him and he's going to be in a wheelchair and completely different. And I was a little bit nervous about how that would be. But Well, every one of those courses is nervous, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely true. I'm going to let you talk soon, don't you worry. (laughs) This is just my little blurb. And when I met you, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, he is the most vibrant, alive person with presence and energy, even if he's not able to stand up and, you know, run around the room or use his body. And so that's what I'd like to just acknowledge in you, Dave, that you have a a really strong presence, a, a great energy, and I've been really inspired watching you. Go through this process where you went from one way of living and being in the world to a completely different one and how you've had to reinvent yourself. So today we're going to look at that and look a bit of, bit of your backstory, who you were, how you were living, and then this, this event, that moment when everything changed. Yeah, it was very much a moment. Well, let's just talk about before the moment, before 2015, mm. just maybe an average day, average week. How was your life? How were you? I'd settled into it. You know, I'd been mm. in Wanaka for over 20 years. Mm. And um, in that time, you know, I found my niche and I didn't really intend to leave ever. Uh, I'd probably done most of the climbing, but certainly not all of it that I was going to do. And I'd diverse, you know, my outdoor life in particular, I'd diversified to the ocean. I loved uh, free diving and fishing and getting out on the boat and uh, um, more water-based kind of activities. But I was between, you know, work was around canyoning and a few film jobs, uh, doing safety, mountain rigging and stunt rigging and carry on like that. Um, 
And in the summer, mostly. And in the winter was time off to ski and do mountain stuff. And yeah, and I totally was in that groove and loving it. And I had no plans at all to change it. You know, I was in the best place you could imagine being to do that and had plenty of time. And work itself was uh, canyoning. I um, had stepped away from guiding a lot more than I, you know, than being all hands on and being in the canyon every day to being more. <clears throat> managerial might not be the word for me but um, well head honcho <laughs> is on your website <laughs> what well, was it, was it? Uh, uh, but uh, still being actively involved in you know keeping it on especially the safety side of it uh, but it, it was a super rewarding business to be involved in uh, you know people have meaningful experiences going canyoning and they have a whole bunch of fun and you're introducing people people to an environment they never otherwise see, which is a natural environment. And you're doing it, you know, at a level which is, it makes it more meaningful in mm. some way to a lot of people that uh, nature's out there and they're part of it and, you know, it really gets into them. Mm. And I think I've always regarded that as probably the main thing that's, with canyoning that um, that I got out of it too was seeing those reactions. Mm. So an average day for you would look like what? Uh, if I was at home and, you know, canyoning was going on, I'd be, you know, overseeing the, the uh, or training at the beginning of the season, setting up the canyons and um, getting all that underway. I'd be really busy in October and November and into December, and then just um, picking the plum guiding jobs that I'd quite like to do, which is maybe the higher end canyons and uh, training some of the other guides up. And often I'd have time off during February and March to go to <coughs> to the Darrens mostly. Mm. And so tell me about and the Darrens uh, and your love for the Darrens, which are in the Fiordland National Park. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, they're a bunch. It's a small, quite compact range of peaks. If you you know if you drive through to Milford Sound and through the tunnel and down that spectacular road down to Milford Sound, they're over on the right. And they, they're the most spectacular bit of, well, in my opinion, um, bit of countryside in the country and that and their, their height gain and from, you know, almost sea level to uh, 3,000 metres of the highest peak, more or less. Um, uh, it, it's a big height gain and uh, in a short space, so they're steep and they're really rugged. And they have quite a dramatic and unique architecture for New Zealand. Mountains, they're much more solid stone. So they stay steep and unweathered and um, good for climbing, obviously. Mm. So yeah. you've pioneered new routes there? That's yeah. been one of the things you've really enjoyed doing? Oh, that's my thing. That was my yeah, thing, climbing was new, new routes. And uh, which there were plenty of around um, Wanaka as well, around uh, Mount Aspiring, especially earlier on. That's all just a different sort of rock, but, you know, you're often climbing on ice as well. Uh, there's still plenty to do. But I totally found my niche in the Darrens because it was more alpine rock climbing. So it's... Uh, mountaineers look at... Traditionally look at uh, hazard as two different sorts, objective hazard and subjective hazard. And uh, objective hazard is things that actually happen that you know you've just got to avoid you know weather avalanches that sort of thing and 
subjective things are, you know, hazards are the mistakes that you make, basically. Um, and possibly both of those are, are easier to manage in the summer when the rocks firm at lower altitude, you know, winter in, in steep countries, um, far more serious. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd done enough of that, I think, and I'd found this little... My friends and, our f- and I had found a wee cave in the middle of the central Darrens that we could live in, and we basically stocked it up over the years. Um, it's no fly zone; it's part of a semi wilderness zone, so you have to walk in, carry everything that you need, climbing gear, clothes, food, da da da, fuel, etc. And um, we got into the habit of carrying a little bit extra and making a little home for ourselves there, and then being able to go climbing and leaving all our gear there. Mm-hmm made a huge difference and it was quite a novelty to be able to do that in a wilderness area so the things that we did were I don't know we're kind of doing it in in a new way in a new place so it was super exciting and it was exactly the sort of climbing that I totally dig so and with with a lot of risk attached to it no no that's what I really that's what Mm. I really liked about it yeah I wouldn't say I've always been fussy about the amount of risk that I'm prepared to undertake I was you know when I was young and keen and Verging on obsessive, um, yeah, I could put up with a lot more than I um, could in my later later years. Mm. Mm. So, you know, you've got this life going on in Wanaka. You're really happy. You've got your canyoning business. You've got your adventures to the Darrens. Was there anything else that you were thinking? Ah, oh, yeah, I want to try that next. Or you know, what were your sort of dreams or visions at that point for yourself? Uh, <laughs> well, the ocean. Like I said, I'd moved to mm. that. I was really enjoying freediving and. Um, catching lots of fish and lobster um and i had some adventure thoughts on um some more far-flung far-out adventures um that involved the ocean uh, i've done a bit of sea kayaking as well which i really loved those more longer journeys i guess mm. was um that i've always been interested a little bit interested in the arts and you know checking out a bit more of that Internationally, oh, yeah, and I've had thought about doing some writing, but hadn't done much. How about, I'd quite like to just maybe lead into what happened, you know, the accident, that moment that's changed everything. And obviously you're on an adventure with your friends in the Darren, so maybe mm. just tell me about that. Well, that was a, um, a fairly regular event, that trip. It was a sort of a, well, it was January. I think the 18th or the 19th was the day we walked out. Yes, there you go, the anniversary day. Um <laughs> Uh, an annual trip into this little cave I just told you about, which we called the Eyrie. <laughs> and because uh, it was, it's a little hole in a cliff up a mountain in the middle of the mountains. And, so no uh, one else knew about it except oh, you guys? No, a few people we'd, had, we'd t- told them about it. And yeah. a few other people had been in there at that stage, but maybe only half a dozen. Mm. And usually there'd be one trip a year and it would be us. Uh, it's grown in popularity, actually. There's... You know, three or four parties every year mm. going there, and probably using some wild climbing gear, which still lives in there. Probably, they're probably in my old sleeping bag too. It's a bit, oh, yeah, anyway, but let's not dwell on that. Um, so you left your sleeping bags in there I too. I left. I've left. Yeah, I've got a whole yeah. bunch of clothes and sleeping bags. I'm probably either rotten or been taken out by now. But anyway, yeah. Um, and we went in there for a ten-day trip. Uh, great friends, Richard, Richard, and Richard, and Tom. Yep. We attempted uh, an unclimbed face, still unclimbed, 
No one had even tried before because it's kind of remote and difficult and you can't see it from anywhere, so it's not particularly obvious. We had a good go at that and it was too hard for us, so we had to bail on that and we did another wee route on another shorter wall and um, faffed around. A lot, a lot of the beauty of going into the central Darrens was, is, that you don't actually have to go climbing. It's so spectacular. You can just go there and mill around. If you're tramping, it's pretty exciting tramping. You're often following little ledge systems above cliffs and it's all very interesting terrain. Mm -hmm. Right from the word go, you know, often got to swim a river to get in there and go up through the bush on deer trails and sleep under rock bivies and all that sort of carry on. So it's, you know, any trip in there, even in bad weather, if you don't get much climbing done, is, uh, is an adventure mm. and, and a bit of a joy. So, so anyway, we've been in there for 10 days and... Uh, Decided we need to leave, and the weather was packing in a wee bit. We had no way of knowing what the weather forecast was by that stage, you know, having been in there for that long. Anyway, we needed to get out. We didn't have any food much left. So um, and it's quite an involved, the direct route we've pioneered out of there involves several abseils and wandering down over a glacier, and, you know, it's, it's relatively tricky. And it ends up going down a steep valley and then, crossing a river and getting on the track the last for the last hour but anyway we descended and uh, down through the abseils and it started raining harder and harder and harder and eventually it got to a full-on storm by the time we got to the forest we couldn't cross the river because the river was up and to the track so we had to forge our way down the difficult side which we'd done once before in a pretty similar circumstance and uh and it got dark and the storm just got more and more full on. It was the biggest storm I've ever seen in the Darrens. And I've seen mm. quite a few. And um, then... Thunder and lightning. Massive lightning and right above us. So it was um. a very intense, excuse me, uh, storm. And uh, then we had a wee break. We crossed what we thought would be the last major stream crossing on the way out. And so are you carrying a big pack at this yeah, point? Yeah, big, big heavy pack. Big yeah. pack, and you're bush bashing pretty much on Total the... Total bush bashing in the field okay. and jungle, yep. So bush bashing for someone who doesn't know what that means, how would you describe it? <laughs> uh, ooh, it's, it's quite a steep descent, so a lot of rotten logs and stuff that you're crashing down through and falling mm -hmm. over banks and sliding down through the ferns and the bush lawyer or whatever else you come across, and uh, crossing creeks and just... Not often able to see that far in front of you, and yeah, and, and it got dark, and then you could see even less in front of you, of course. And we stopped at the last little Moro bar, probably about an hour from the road, and, and I was at the back of the, when we set off after that. And three of you, four of four you, four of us, mm -hmm. and uh, the other three we got to some kind of bank or rollover or something. We traversed around above the top of it. And I remember seeing Richard's foot on this route, pushing off in front of my face and going on. And then I climbed over there where I'm pretty sure the route snapped. Uh. And I'd said nothing much for my hands and I slid off over the bank and yeah, the bank and I fell through the darkness. But I, as I fell, I fell head first, completely upside down. This is what it felt like for what seemed like ages and ages. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm this is not good. And I landed right on the top of my head and just had this massive crunch. And <laughs> and almost instantly, that was it. You know, I'd broken my neck. And 
Yeah, and uh, just end up lying face down, unable to move, unable to yell. Richard had seen my headlamp tumble off the back, so he came back and he was there really quick and checked me. And yeah, there I was. I, I knew straight away. I told him what had happened. I told him that I broke my neck. And anyway, it's thunder, lightning, absolutely pissing with rain. You know, it's just, it, it was an extremely bad situation. Mm. Mm. How far did you actually fall? Well, as it turns out, Rich Rich went back about a month later to just take stock of it mm. in his head, really. And he found the spot, because it was a relatively obvious spot, because after the rescue there'd been a few little trees cut down and stuff, and, you know, he found the spot, and he took some photos and videos of it, and we just shook our heads and went, how did that happen? And I, I fell down maybe a three or four metre bank. It wasn't even a vertical bank. And about halfway down, there's a little step on it, which had two big, deep foot marks on it. And at the bottom of that, there's a big root with a tree gnarled, a burl on it. And it's surrounded by kind of mud. And all he could work out was that I'd slipped down there after that root broke, hit the, you know, land on my feet after we slide. And I did have a big, heavy pack. I was tired and everything, and I flipped upside down and landed on my head on the rock. But that's not what it felt like. It felt like I'd fallen off a massive cliff in the dark. And, and just plummeted that, down. That, that, that little bit there that took about a second seemed to me to take forever in my memory. Yeah. And But the outcome, whatever, is the same. But we just got, still can't quite believe that happened there. The number of banks we'd slipped and slithered and fall over, fallen over that day was, you know, hundreds. Crazy. And, uh, yeah, just a freak thing. But, I mean, freak things happen when it's just a numbers game, really, at the end of the day. In statistical terms, something's going to go wrong eventually. Mm. And uh, That was your moment. That was my moment. <laughs> anyway, so there's a huge big rescue and uh, it was a big drama. And uh, Yeah, I heard that you guys all got hypothermia because they, the rescuers couldn't get in. Is that is Well, that yep, we set off a beacon. Mm-hmm. So you're lying there, right? Can you feel anything? Do you know no. that you're paralysed at yep. that point? Yep, totally. Uh. And uh, we had no particular shelter. We'd never tent or any fly or anything like that. And so Richard, one of the Richards, shot off on his own to go and raise the alarm. The other Rich, Rich and Tom, stayed to look after me and do whatever. So they made an amazing little platform for me on my packs, moved me really carefully, held my head the whole time and... We just piled everything we possibly had on top of us, which is clothes and sleeping bags, and they all just got drenched straight away. But we'd just lay under there for about holding my head. <laughs> yeah, it must have been so unutterably grim for Richard and Tom. And um, and were they talking? Were you talking to them? Every like, now and, every now and yeah. again, and I was actually quite comfortable, and I felt quite warm, and I was quite all right. I was yeah, we talked about. Um, Quite a, I thought I was quite aware, but in retrospect, I probably wasn't and um, that aware. And in the meantime, they just sat to stay where they were, which started off as a little... They ended up, they were crouching in a stream up to their legs for hours. Mm. And anyway, the other Richard got out, raised the alarm. They were already had been alerted by the beacon, by the, the system that, you know, there'd been an accident. And um, they didn't know what or quite where or how 
And then they got the information from Milford on the phone, so that was really good, and they launched a foot rescue. A bunch of um, people arrived about four or five in the morning. It took them about an hour from the hour and a half from the road to get up to our place. But they were quite pushed to do that. It's pretty rugged terrain, especially some of them. And um, But, you know, they came with all the right things and saved my life. And helicoptered out at the tail end of the storm because the storm lasted all night. Wrenched out through the bush underneath the helicopter. And what was going through your mind at that point? The rest of it. You know, what was your thought process? Can you remember what you were thinking? Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, shit, I've... Yeah. That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I can. Well, I think I can remember it quite well. I mean, it's obviously I was a bit lady, la, la la. But although there were no drugs involved, I don't think I don't think I was uh, morphined up or anything. I can't remember. Um, not a, not certainly not until they arrived. Oh, I knew I was paralysed. Mm. You know, the, it, for the first two or three hours, I thought about. Um, whether I was going to die, because my breathing became kind of difficult and laboured and right up high in my chest, um, and I just sort of felt all like I might just slip away, which kind of seemed right, mm. <laughs> actually. Mm. There was, um, fear? Was there fear there for you? Not particularly. Mm. And, um, and then I thought, when well, no, that didn't happen, I'm here. <laughs> but I could, I knew what had happened. I could just tell I was paralysed. And uh, I considered asking Rich to finish it off for me, but I didn't. I, mm. And actually, for a while, I thought, there, have I asked him and did we have this conversation? <laughs> I didn't really want to do that in the end. You know, you can't. It's a really hard thing to do mm. unless, you, you know, unless you've got other things going on, I guess. But... Um, yeah, there's a wee, you know, lust for life that keeps you going and keep mm. me going just mm. right then. Mm -hmm. So got through that and everyone else, um, you know, I just hung on in there and I could tell things were bad and it might not go that well, but nothing much I could do about it. It was pretty funny in that, you know, from my being involved in search and rescue <laughs> a lot <laughs> previously, you know, I was sitting on the other end. You know, in my head, I was going, oh, no, they should be doing this. And I'm sure I was issuing instructions. <laughs> and I think I did it. I did uh, issue some instructions. But uh, I'm not sure if they were listened to or not. But I felt like I was – I kept myself really involved in what was going mm. on through that whole thing, even if it was only in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Until I got lifted out. And the last thing I pretty much remember was being under the helicopter through – in the rain, watching the mountains sort of spin around as I spun around under the helicopter. Mm. And then I was out of it. We got set to fly back around the storm and amazing flying um, effort by, um, well, Hannibal Hayes <laughs> and uh, Lloyd Ferguson. The rescue team were amazing. And they flew th through and around a storm to get there and back around it to get me out. I'm not quite sure of the chain of events. I think they landed in town out of the rescue helicopter from Dunedin, picked me up, took me to. Dunedin, I was on death's door with hypothermia. My apparently, I don't know you could do this. Yeah, my body temperature went down to thirty-one or so for hours, like seven or eight hours, and they couldn't revive, bring it up for a long time. And I think that's I don't know, close to death anyway. But um, so there's that, and then they got a 
fix my neck and but you could tell it wasn't far away. Yeah, no, and so and then so you, from Dunedin, did you end up in the spinal unit in Burwood? They stabilised me and on the flight there and in Dunedin, and then a day later or two days later, once they'd done the hypothermia thing and st- stabilised my neck, which I think involved a halo kind of thing, um, they whipped me up to Christchurch and did a spinal fusion of 456, C456, and uh, it's just um, to stabilise it. And uh, then the next three weeks or so were in ICU and the subsequent um, pneumonia, which kind of came from it because your lungs get pretty inoperable once you've got a spinal injury that high, C4. It's hard to clear your lungs. So they had lung infections, two or three rounds of lung infections, which had a good go at it. But uh, three weeks in ICU cleared all that up. So in those moments, you could breathe yourself or that you you had to be... I was on a ventilator quite mm. a lot of that time. Mm. Mm. So quite a few moments where you potentially could have died or felt like you were dying. Uh, well, by the time you get in the ICU, you're on drugs. Okay. And actually, that's where you get the visions. <laughs> yeah. I've got some great stories from the drugs, which... Um, well, tell us why. Well, they were, actually, they were really related to what was going on. I think you're in a fairly shallow drug regime there because they actually brought me out of those drugs to, bizarrely, so I could give consent to some of the operations. And the, But the memories I have of that are almost all of um, being trapped or confined or lost. Mm. They're quite dark. Spider webs, tunnels, confined spaces. Not quite monsters, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then coming out of those quite regularly, which I think would have been the times I kind of woke up in real life and then I couldn't move. Mm. Yeah, so that. And I've always been a little, you know, claustrophobic. And, uh, yeah, that that was definitely, I mean, I've had a life that's revolved around movement. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Up until then. Hmm. So how did you, I mean, obviously your mind, you were on the drugs and all that then. When you started to become, I guess, more lucid or more aware or less drugged up, how how did you cope with, you know, how, I mean, I just, it must have been really hard to be lying there not being able to move. Did you start to have sort of mind strategies to help you with this? Any things you were saying to yourself? What helped? Uh, people helped, mm. mainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I'd be here without people. Mm. Mm. Um, Any sort of... I didn't know. I don't know that it had many particular strategies. For the ICU part of it, you are on drugs and you just kind of, you know, you're in survival mode Mm. mentally. I think you just do what you feel you have to do to get through it. Uh, I don't think there's anything particularly special that I did. I didn't have any, you know, particular strategies. We had all sorts of bizarre ones. We got a... Had a lip reader at one stage to do some communicate because we had the whole you know alphabet board thing for communicating when I had the tracheostomy and I couldn't talk. And then then I, we had a lip reader because we had to have some important discussion about wow. something I forget what it was. And that's a job for someone a lip reader. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I think we paid her a hundred bucks to come in. And I th- as I recall, it helped. Yeah. Well, I think she said, "Make sure you move your mouth really clearly." <laughs> 
I've I know that you're now you're uh, what your label that you've got is incomplete tetraplegia. So yep. what does that sort of what does that mean for well, you? When, when you when you damage your spine, you have a level, you know, which is the vertebral level. So mine's C four, so you know that's quite high. Uh, if if you were a complete C four, you would basically have the physical any physical function would be from your shoulders up. Uh, our breathing would be difficult, I think. Depends. I'm not totally sure, but it's something like that. Um, but the other thing that affects your injury is the actual level of damage to the spinal cord, to the bundles of nerves in your spinal cord. And uh, a complete one would be where they're all damaged, so they're not all severed you know, mm-hmm. effectively. But I'm not that. Um, and I've just had damage to presumably most of them. <laughs> and that damage is also, the, the, the type of damage depends on whether it's at the front or the back or the left or the right, you know, as to where that damage manifests the most. So my right side's worse than my left side. And uh, so I'm sort of C4 on one side and C5 on the other side. And, and because I'm incomplete, I actually have function below that level. Uh, so I can... You know, I can move my legs, but um, I can with a walking frame stagger a little bit, you know, with a little Zimmer frame with wheels. Yeah. I can stagger around a little bit. That's not particularly useful functionally, but I can in a standing frame and stand up with maybe a booster and stand, um, leaning on my arms, uh, which is good for feeling tall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I do that every day for exercise really rather than as a functional thing. And does that will that improve, you know, over time or you're no. sort of at the limit of no. as far as you can go yeah, right I, now? I think so. So they don't give you any particular prognosis when when it happens no. um, because they don't know with incomplete injuries. And they they, <laughs> they okay, they say that now most of that recovery is most likely to occur within two years of your injury and that's more or less been my mm. um my case so maybe for two and a half years I worked hard and so how were the first I guess few years after after the accident you know what were the things that the were the hardest for you to cope with or the hardest for you to let go of or well obviously it's it's, it's the first bit's probably the hardest mm. uh, just getting your head around the permanence of it and the massive and, and just realising what a change it is it, it is a complete change of life I think having an incomplete injury and having some improvement really helps because even though it's not much it's tediously glacially slow you know if there's some you just keep at it and that's what I did for quite a while and uh, you know and I guess that changes as well from being a physical thing eventually to being um, a, a mental thing mm. because that's hard. That's the hardest bit. It's quite easy in some ways. It's quite simple in the beginning and that you just want to get better and you put everything into getting better. And then when you don't physically get better anymore and you're just kind of in a maintenance regime or working on just a few little bits and pieces here and there, um, you've really got to think about the whole rest of your life and what you're going to do with it. Mm. And uh, you know that means you know you you just have to give a lot of that stuff away, and there's a 
there's a grieving process, no doubt, giving away a lot of that. Mm, and did mm. that happen for you? Was there a process where you went into sort of a grieving? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. You go through all that. Yeah. So where did so you've done your grieving? You, you. I think I have. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 largely, I largely have. Yeah. <laughs> so were, were there some turning points for you? Were you were you suddenly, I don't know, got a new zest for? Okay, right. This is what I'm going to do now. I think, yeah. I think there's a, a process for getting into that that change. It's that opening. Of, I think it might be sounding a bit cliche, but that is that. Um, it's sort of an opening of doors thing. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to just kind of open a door and have a look in the room and see if it, if it's your kind of room. Mm-hmm. You don't ever open it, you know, you're never going to know. And There's going to be a lot of doors that you open or knock on and they don't open and, you know, they're just not for you. And I think the main thing is just to keep, keep looking and, you know, you might not have much of an idea. Um, creatively, I think... Actually, I, got, I have got one really good little story. It's a good little moment. Um, I think it might have been the first or second day I was in the spinal unit. So after ICU, I went to the Burwood spinal unit for seven months. And on day one or two there, there's, this, there's a psychologist there, and he came in to see me, Tom. And... Um, and we had this discussion, which at the time almost took me back a little bit right at the beginning. He says, okay, Dave, now you, you realise that most of the things that you used to do, it's not likely that you're going to be able to do them again. Which I was quite impressed with in many ways because I'd already worked that out for myself. <laughs> but, the, you know, the, the doctors and the surgeons, they don't really tell you that. They, they don't give you that prognosis. Mm. Up front, and Tom didn't give me a prognosis, but he said most likely this, you know. And he said, before you think about it too much, what is the one thing that you'd really like to do? And without hardly thinking about it, I said writing. And um, I mean, oh, and actually it was really funny. His, his, his eyes lit up and he goes, oh, 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 give me a minute. And he trotted off and he came back with his laptop. And he said, this is my laptop. This, I run my entire office off this laptop and I never hardly ever use the keyboard. I put it down over there and I tell it what to do. And he showed me how he uses his voice recognition software on his laptop just in front of me. And I went, and he said, you know, even if you never get to use a keyboard or whatever, you're going to be able to write. Awesome, eh? It's it was Amazing. a great moment, and I, I actually, yeah, I went, oh, great. Actually, I, it wasn't at the time. It was, it was a bit later. I was thinking about that moment. Going, He's dead right. That's just, that was just one door that, yeah. that opened, but it happened to be the one that actually had popped straight into my head. Hmm. And maybe the one that seemed the most accessible to be able to do. Yeah, well, there's all there are all sorts of ways of, uh, if you can't use your hands, of um, of writing. Te- I mean, you know, technology certainly helps a lot. Mm. But there's, you know, ways you can use your eyes and a, and a reflective thing on cursor and uh, you can use your breath um, to control a mouse. Uh, you can do all sorts of cool stuff like that. So tell me about how, I mean, today, now, you've got, you've written a book. 
So tell me about that. Tell me about the process of you going, right, I'm going to write a book. How am I going to do this? What do I need to do first? Which, oh, well, you yes. see, that, that, this is it. You see, you think you do, the process of writing a book is you come up with a great idea and you make a plan and you, you write your book. Well, it's not my experience. <laughs> <laughs> I read about it in the most convoluted way I think you could possibly do that. And I just started writing little stories as, uh, and I, I think I I think I really started writing little stories to myself about what I'd done and in the outdoors about trips I'd done. And they were mostly quite short, maybe a few hundred words. And ended up with, you know, an increasing collection of those. And and I think I did that just so I wouldn't, I didn't consciously do it at the time to sort of write it down so I wouldn't forget, but I think there was a bit of that. And um, as I did that, I kind of thought, oh, I did actually start to see a bit of a theme. And my journey through, you know, before my before my accident, and my journey through the adventurous lifestyle, the accident really added focus to that. Mm. And I uh, just ended up getting more and more into it and developing a bit of a theme. And ending up with a kind of a book-length manuscript sort of thing. Oh, shit, what am I going to do with this? And I didn't really know, so I sent it off to a, a manuscript assessor, which there is such a thing, a sort of mm-hmm. editor-style sort of type person, and she was fantastic and uh, gave me some great hints and guide, guidelines into what, what it was, actually what it was to start with, and what it could be and how to get it there. Mm. So you'd, you'd put together this book kind of before you'd gone to Wellington. So quite like, I quite like that idea of you. I want to hear about you oh, yeah, making right that yeah. decision to move. Oh, okay, well, yeah. no, okay, well I, I did that and I sort of did the, the lockdown, um, apply myself to the book thing. And outside of that, I decided I, I just needed to get out of Wanaka. Mm. You know, in that... I've got so many fantastic friends there. Um, but the mountains are right in my face every day, you know. And all my friends are still doing all the same things. And I just needed to change, fundamentally change where I was, I think, so that I could involve myself in whatever else it was that I was going to do. And I didn't really know, but I enrolled in a writing course in Ototahi at the Hagley Writers Institute. And they do some fantastic sort of short courses. This is just a weekend creative writing course, uh, which is a super well-regarded one and easily done because it's just on the weekends. And I sort of right, I'm going to move up to Christchurch, which I did. And it completely landed on my feet. Well, you know, figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> uh, up here my new partner and um, and it's that Hagley course is modelled on um, the Creative Writing Masters course at the International Institute of Modern Letters at Vic University and uh, which is kind of this um, you know, primo creative writing course in New Zealand kind of thing as I understood it and so I applied for that as well it's quite hard to get into and I got into it mm. <laughs> So after moving to Christchurch, you're making all that big move all of a sudden. Oh my God, Wellington! It's an it's a step up and move. 
And so, what was the most challenging thing for you doing the 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 year course in creative writing? A finding a place to live in Wellington. That's um, with the wheelchair. I mean, every, well, especially yeah. I mean, I think everyone has that trouble. It's really mm. difficult. Um, oh, halfway through the year, or about a third of the way through the year, it got a bit difficult because I crashed my. Uh, I got this whiz bang new wheelchair called an Omeo. Which uh, that was bang over one over there that's not working this morning. Is that um, it there? It's there. It's a sit on Segway. Okay. Designed and manufactured in Otaki and sold around the world now. It's totally cutting edge piece of equipment. It's fantastic. So I can roar around at high speed, but and goes, it has a certain off road capability and Do you wear a goes helmet? up and down curbs at times. Oh, really? At times, yeah. Um, but anyway, I crashed it and I broke my hip halfway through my year last year. Broke, broke my femur and actually had to get a replacement in the middle of my master's year. <laughs> and then we got COVID and then we got another big flu and then I've had complications ever since from that replacement and that put a bit of a downer on things. Mm. Yeah, I think the big shift I've made, you know, I mean, I've used to, I used to be very body focused and movement focused and now that's kind of gone. And it sounds really obvious that, oh, okay, well, the, my potential lies with my mind. But it took a long time to realise that. Mm. Maybe my mind was a bit atrophied or something. But um, to to actually take, you know, it's easy to think that and say it, but to actually take that on board and go and actively seek a life of the mind, so, you know, go to university and start talking creative writing stuff with, you know, um, I've was a big step for me and uh but once i got in the groove which i still am in i'm yeah. i'm in the groove I'm, yeah. I'm i'm loving my not that i've been doing much writing since being back from wellington but i am in the general groove i just want to talk a little bit about your book the feedback was quite from the two people this last week and was kind of different to what i expected tell me about it what was it they said it was harrowing they 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 really liked it but they found it quite difficult. Both of them said I had to go for a wee walk in the garden afterwards and catch my breath before I'm talking mm. to you about this book. And it was really interesting to me. I went, oh, really? Because I wrote it at enough of a remove from all that to, you know, I think I was actually reasonably clear-eyed about it when I wrote it. I actually, when I wrote some of it, I remember crying when I wrote some of it. Mm. But now I've, that's... It, I've definitely moved on from that. Mm. So, you know, if anyone, anyone out there is finding it harrowing, it's, <laughs> I'm better. <laughs> I actually wrote that quite a while ago now. That's actually probably three years ago that most of that was written. And and I've done the whole bunch of writing since then. You know, I've done my MA um, uh, thesis, my manuscript, which is kind of the part, part two of the book, actually. Mm -hmm. It's easy, especially as a writer, to just hide away in your little dark room with your laptop or whatever and do your writing and mm. not show anyone, which is actually what I did for quite a few years. And then to actually get it out there um, and have people read it. Mm. Mm. I'm just going to read a little bit because I did some research on your book and mm. this is 
I think when you Google it, you go to the Paper Plus and then it has the blurb. Maybe that's on the back of it and it says here. Not Set in Stone is a brave and compelling book that not only describes the passion of a mountain life, but the consequences of when it goes wrong and how he has had to come to terms with a completely different existence. Dave Vass is a talented writer and this book will take a unique and important place in New Zealand's outdoor literature. So I thought that was... Well, really nicely said. Oh, well, Talented you know, writer, Dave. Oh well, you know that's I guess that's what blurbs are all for. Yeah. Okay. Anyone listening today, you're going to have to read or purchase Dave's book, which you get online, and it's called Not Set in Stone: The Consequences of Mountain Life. Oh, it's Dave the, the, the the passion and consequence of a mountain life. That might have been an earlier blurb. I think. Oh, okay. So it's called yeah. the passion and consequence well, of a mountain life. Not not set in stones. The main title there. Yeah. The cover's really good too. Isn't it? That's some like yeah. Wanaka artist. Don't, really? Diane, Who, Diana Adams. I haven't okay. met her yet, but she's very um, gracious in letting me use the use the painting. Great. Mm. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for for talking today and mm. and being here and all your vibrancy and energy and your passion for writing and passion for life. Good luck with everything. Thanks, Lee. Nice Thanks, to catch Dave. up with you. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.